This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project. Teachers teaching teachers. of the Ohio Writing Project. My name is Noah Waspy. Sorry about my voice today. I caught the COVID thing, but I'm coming out of it. Sorry I'm also late with this episode due to the COVID thing. So today we have a really awesome interview with Angela Stockman. But before we get to it, uh, a poem by Laura Van Proyen, a guest on a future episode of this show. This is from her book, Francis of the Wider Field. The poem is called Query. If I said... The peacocks in the gazebo woke me from a dream where someone shouted for help. The sky yellowed, red lights flashed across a girl's face. Would it be then that I was dreaming? Francis, did you hear the peacocks call for help? Where did those birds go? Okay, on to the show. So today I interviewed Angela Stockman, author of several books, and her most recent one is Creating Inclusive Writing Environments in the K-12 Classroom. Reluctance, Resistance, and Strategies That Make a Difference. Her book, her previous work has been about merging the worlds of writing workshop and the maker space. And this book continues that work, but it really focuses in on what teachers can do both internally and externally to help the young writers in their classroom. So here it is, my interview with Angela Stockman. I get really uncomfortable is I'm really sort of attracted to humble practitioners right and and they make me feel like I can try things that I'm not good at because they're trying things that they aren't good at and they're willing to make mistakes in front of me and that makes me willing to try new things that maybe I'm not going to be able to finish or I'm certainly not going to be able to do perfectly. And I can throw it out there in front of them too. And and we can learn and make it better together. And sometimes I am really reluctant to commit to people or projects or spaces or conversations where it feels like there's a lot of certainty. Like we should be doing it this way. And this is my opinion about that. And and especially if there's a lot of shaming going on that's in the, mm-hmm. the wide open air. Um, because first of all, I guess, you know, I'm 30 years in this gig now. And I kind of have a difficult time with the certainty inside of people's voices. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, where did your research come from, especially in the field of literacy? Mm-hmm. And education in general <laughs> is an infant. Like, we are babies and newcomers to all of this. I don't care how long you have yeah. been building your expertise. Like, in the grand scheme of things, education in general is kind of an infant. And so um, I, I really appreciate humble practitioners. And I also think it helps us notice the unexpected mm-hmm. and um, and chase it and not have to control it, 
but learn from it. And that's really rewarding for me. And I think it's the key to burnout, like just being able to go in with a topic, not even a question, but go enter a situation with a topic and try to notice and observe and pay attention to and and document everything you see. Um, And then bring lots of people around you to try to make sense from it, uh, especially students. Mm -hmm. And that has been, not only has it it taught me so much that I didn't expect to learn, um, but it's 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 made me excited about yeah. the work that I do, and it it sustains me, especially when things get really hard or really is, boring. And I want to I want to dig into all of this, and I know that the humility piece is like a massive cornerstone of the new book, yeah. creating inclusive writing environments in the K twelve classroom, and I want to dig into all of it. Um, I think a good, I was wondering if maybe a good starting point might be, what's a myth about doing this kind of makerspace making kind of work with students? I think that the biggest trap with all of it is when systems or teachers individually feel like they have to go out and prefabricate the whole space and and spend a ton of money and outfit it in a particular way. I think this is the biggest mistake that we Mm -hmm. make. And every single time I enter a conversation um, with district level administrators or even teachers where they've spent a boatload of money putting a space together mm-hmm. 100% of the time they will say no one's using it no one's yes. using the space yes and and I think that we put the space ahead of the learning and and when I say the learning I mean the teachers learning and when I say the learning I don't mean giving them staff development on how to do a makerspace I mean honestly and I, I think I'm arriving at this point where I value so much the use of qualitative evidence and data in the classroom and documentation I mean have teachers enter a space their own classroom have them have a topic in mind um, what my friend Joanne Paconzokia used to refer to as a stone in her shoe. You know, what are the stones in your shoes? What's sort of like nagging at you every time you're trying to be of service, you know, to to your students. If you go in with that topic and just document everything you, you see relevant to it without making any judgments or drawing any conclusions, just take the pictures, record the audio, interview your students, capture some artifacts, and then really start to analyze that information and notice what's coming out of it, code that data, mm-hmm. you start to realize where they want to go, what they really are great at, what they're enthusiastic about, passionate about, the things that they have expertise in. And that's really the hook. Like, what is this kid good at already? Mm-hmm. And don't assume you need to teach them. Don't assume you need to give them the potato or the lemon juice. Like just create the space for them to do the stuff that they're really interested in. What are they messing around with at home? I will never forget. I'll call her Elizabeth. Uh, There was a student when I was still in the classroom, I was teaching middle school, was not producing inside of our narrative writing unit anything. No homework was being done. Um, And that was before I, I knew better. Um, around how to do that better but essentially she wasn't engaged in the writing that we were doing and um, so I scheduled an appointment with mom and dad to come in 
and talk a little bit. I wanted a conference. And when I called, I remember feeling really thrown because mom was like, yeah, I'm really excited to come in and talk with you too about her writing. I, I want to discuss this with you as well. I'm so glad that you called. You must have been reading our minds, blah, blah, blah. Well, little did I know, mom comes in with this box full of notebooks that Elizabeth has been keeping at home because she writes fan fiction and lots of it. <laughs> And way better wow. than every single student I've probably ever had. But in class, she wasn't showing up with any of that. And it was because I was teaching lessons inside of a unit that was really over-articulated and hyper-aligned. Mm. And my lessons were really, really detailed. And there were many lessons, but Elizabeth had already created her world, created her character. She was using dialogue. And my little lessons were not helping her forward that particular story. And that's really mm -hmm. what she was passionate about and interested in. And I'm making this assumption that this kid can't write mm -hmm. um, or is a reluctant writer. And it really, you know, knocked me back in a good yeah. way and made me realize that, no, this is a student that is presenting as a reluctant writer. It is a student that is presenting perhaps as a struggling writer and that whole notion of presentation is bound up in my own biases. Like that's that's the meaning I'm bringing. That's the story I'm imposing on this on this writer, based on my own experiences. It's not reality, right? And so, with the makerspace thing and the spending of the tons of money, I, I really think that if we can just loosen up a little bit, offer wide opportunity for writers to write about things that they're interested in and good at and, and we sort of generalize here a lot mm -hmm. so give them a lot of voice and choice okay but what does that really entail mm -hmm. it's not just you can write a story about whatever you want but i find it gets real sticky when we're talking about research and information writing or argument writing and you're really getting at the heart of it. What is this kid doing outside of school? What are they good at? And if you have create space for them to do that stuff inside of your classroom, then automatically when I said to Luke, hey, do you wanna teach other people about this? Sure, and he's off and running and there is no hesitancy around putting down written words and he might even misspell a lot, but he's much more confident. Like the writing is secondary for him to being able to connect and teach someone what he's good at. So he he feels confident about this side of the project. I'm really confident that what he did, I mean, Luke, he was like five or six years old and we had just transitioned, um, I think to Windows 10 and people were, or Word or something, I can't remember, but there was this major transition with a tool that teachers were using a lot and they didn't know how, and he was an expert at it already at like five or six. He led a <laughs> workshop for like 30 teachers on how to do this he had slides and he was just presenting away and even though he struggled i think to be able to put down print with the level of perfection that he wanted to as a presenter and a facilitator mm -hmm. at age five um it didn't it didn't bang him up as much it didn't bruise his ego because he had a lot of confidence in the fact that he knew how to do this thing that teachers didn't know how to do so great I need to learn how to spell better, but I'm totally going to throw this thing together. I'm not going to be hesitant because I know what I'm doing. Um, and I, it's just been an education. There's such a psychology inside of all of this. That's really important to be aware of. Yeah. Way to answer both questions and with, with one answer, the, 
the thing that with my uh, Joe story and the lemon potato battery stuff that we made at the end of that, I asked him, so what do you, what do you, what, do you, what what's new for you? What do you want to get into? And he wanted to know more about like wiring things. So our first makerspace, when I finally asked the question, what does, what does he want? What is he interested in doing to your right. point? Um, our first makerspace was just me getting a bunch of things from thrift shops, electronics yep. through their electronics. It was like a hand mixer. I found like an old hand dryer, um, maybe like a radio or something. And we just started taking things apart. Yeah. And then the stuff that we took apart became what I would later learn from your books would later become loose parts. Right. <laughs> that we could make and write and, and think about. And even repurpose and use in a totally different way because exactly. you can use them metaphorically. Yeah, yeah. we had a break it box um, in my last writing studio. I don't have one right now. Where And, and that's, such, that's such a great way to evolve your makerspace. So I've had, I founded the Western New York Young Writing Writer Studio in 2008. And I did that on you know no budget whatsoever it was just something that I wanted to try and so we were really low overhead I rented space uh, the kids registered they paid like a nominal fee and all of that just went to cover the space the rental of the space there were no big glitzy you know materials or tools or anything in that space but I invited them to bring whatever they wanted so if you're working on something at home, bring it to studio. So kids were bringing in their Lego builds. They were bringing, my daughter brought in all of her paints and she brought in her camera and she brought in all of her art supplies because she was really interested in design back then. And different kids would bring in different kits that they were working on or you know pieces of different experiments they were running. And then from there, you start to get a sense of what many kids are interested in. Yes. And at the time, many kids were really interested in um, in using uh, video creation tools. And so mm -hmm. it was worth it for me to invest in iPads at mm -hmm. the time. But I, I could have went and bought those. Right. If I had done that ahead yeah. of time. And aren't you glad I, you didn't start with a 3D printer? Right. <laughs> right. So it's sort of like create the space don't spend a lot of money have people have your students bring in the stuff that they love working on at home make space for them to do mm -hmm. a show and tell around a hobby that they're working on and then find out how do you want to share that with other people like do you want to teach someone how to do that do you want to make a master class you want to make a video do you want to do an infographic um, you know how do you want to share your expertise or tell your mm -hmm. story and then you start to get a sense of, well, a lot of them, like right now, we're getting a lot of utility out of Canva because it's so dynamic and the free version of it is, is really very useful for a mm. lot of different, and that thing, you can use it in a million different ways. It makes sense to really sink in to what that kinds, tool, right? What kinds of things are you doing with Canva? Oh, um, well, I personally, I create everything in Canva. So mm -hmm. um I create all of my marketing materials in Canva. I create my curriculum documents for my own students I, that I, I teach at Damon University. Um, I create all my slides in Canva. I create stop motion videos in Canva. Um, I've created infographics, uh, magazines, books, everything in Canva. My students are using it to create video essays um, this month for my uh, assessment methods course. And they're creating master classes in Canva as well. 
Um, so wow. they're using more of the video creation tools, but um, yeah, it's really dynamic and they have a great digital library and no one's paying me to say any of this, by the way, I, I do not get paid by Canva, but I love that tool. Yeah. Um, and so, but it, it really just, it reinforces what I learned early on, which is that don't go buy a ton of stuff until you find out what they, you really need to spend money on. And the whole notion of like with my students, who who were more electronics minded that those were the materials and those were the things that they wanted to work with i have a lot of a lot of people who come into my studio of all ages k12 even the adults paper is a real language for most yeah. of them they love to work with um collage they love mm -hmm. to work with 3d collage especially is is um, something that um, they enjoy working with but they also love uh, many of them um, enjoy graphic design, infographics. Mm -hmm. I had, I have a, a small a, a group, a cohort from last summer who were really into coding. Mm -hmm. um, and they designed the whole week that we were in writer's studio, they created a video game. Um, I knew nothing about how they were doing this. I was just giving feedback and kind of facilitating the process, but they did a masterclass at the end of the week and they coached other people in the room and how to do the same exact thing on their own. And that that's the kind of writing that every industry wants. Like it, it's not, there's absolutely no guarantee if I'm deciding what final form a piece is going to take that that's preparing them to do anything once they leave the world of school. But what I do know is that I hope all of them figure out what they're good at, what they love to do, that they can make a career out of that. And I know that if they make a career out of that, other people are going to expect them to teach others how to do it. Oh, yeah. um, and so that's kind of where I come from. Like, what do you really love to do? What are you good at? Mm -hmm. Do that thing in my, yeah. in my writing studio. And then how do you want to teach other people how to do that too? I'm pretty sure that if I, if, if we all handle it right, that's what their work life is going to look like mm -hmm. if, if we do this in a really solid way, if, if we make the space for them to figure out what they're good at. And I think programs and opportunities like this that are peripheral to school are so important because we're still valuing you know, the basics inside of school, we still often, too often, are not really aware of all of the opportunities that are available. My daughter wanted to become a graphic designer. She decided that her senior year of high school, she was in an IB program. It was brand new. It was just getting off the ground. There wasn't space for her to do the art classes that she needed in order to be ready for portfolio review day and to apply to design schools. And so she left the IB program and, and uh -huh. you know, there was a lot of gossip and it was really disappointing. Like, oh, she's leaving this incredibly academic and rigorous program to go do art school. Kids kicking ass right now, like professionally. She's 25. She lives in Brooklyn, pays her own rent in Brooklyn, which is more than my mortgage. She doesn't ask her dad and I, you know, for money or a lot of support. Um, she's making a really good living doing that. I would not have known to invite her down that path. It was her theater department at school and the fact that she was involved in musicals and had people there, adults who saw talent in her. It was peripheral to her academic program. And I think that there are so many kids out there who we are, you know, telling really crappy stories about 
and mm -hmm. suggesting that they're struggling writers or resistant learners or mm -hmm. they're not engaged in class well that's because they're good at all this other stuff that yeah. actually they're probably going to get paid a fortune to do if we can help them find that path once they leave school and yeah. it's all the peripheral programming and all the peripheral learning opportunities that that help them find that path they're so important I was interested to see if you could talk about um, how intentional humility works with helping reluctant or resistant writers. Yeah, that's huge. Um, so there are a few things, if I'm just to think off the top of my head, that have probably shifted dramatically over the years for me as I've learned more about the important function of humility inside of great teaching. The mm -hmm. first is that I really try very hard um, not to be confident in my expertise and to remember that those who are behaving with confidence in the field and shooting on other people it should look this way it should be done that way one of the things that really makes me uncomfortable is when i encounter other consultants and other professional learning facilitators who will speak about how teachers are not yet aligned to the proper way to do something they're not even helping writers do this yet and they should be at this point in the and i'm like oh my God, you have lost all perspective. That, Learning isn't um, linear like that. Well, and it's just, it's also, how do you know you've got it right? Yeah. That, that that's really what we need in this moment in time. Kids are coming from all sorts of different places culturally too. Um, so not having so much confidence in my expertise that I'm not, not willing to hear people who are coming from a very different place. That's first. Mm -hmm. Second, understanding that the frames that we use in the West are not the frames that are being used globally, whether that's the frame for a story and the story structure. There was this huge focus on monomyth structure with the Common Core Learning Standards. Mm -hmm. I was all about that until I read Matthew Celeste's book, Craft in the Real World. And he is mm -hmm. like, oh, by the way, that little story structure that we're also like enamored with here in the West, it's not how we do it everywhere else. Um, and the fact is that we really do have a global sort of texture inside of our classrooms our, and our students are coming from very different cultures, even if they grew up in the United States. Um, they're descended from people who are coming from from possibly very different places and um, that imprint is lasting from one generation to the next. I also think it's really important to have an agile curriculum. And so I am an alignment girl at heart. I understand the importance of alignment. I am paid to facilitate um, great alignment work. But what I know is that we have spent a lot of time over articulating curriculum mm -hmm. and leaving absolutely no room for the writers in the room um, and for to be able to shift in response to what they need. So getting better at understanding what are the load bearing walls inside of a curriculum and what can wiggle? What is the frame, right? If I know what my learning target is or my standard, I can keep that in mind. I can still give an awful lot of choice around the mode of expression that I'm asking you to use. We can use a multimodal process to produce print. 
We can also use print to produce multimodal work. We can absolutely create space for, for writers to show up as their whole selves. And if we don't, there, I, I truly believe English teachers like me can do a lot of harm and I have, um, and it can Same. be a pretty elitist space mm -hmm. um, where we have really biased notions mm -hmm. about what writing is, who writers are, what the process looks like. When we dig into the research around where all of these things that we hold so dear, that are so precious to writing workshop, we dig into where that came from, that it's problematic. Um, yeah. in a lot of ways. And so and, that's yeah. important too. And this goes into the second thing that I noticed that you were talking about in the macro. You don't, in, at one point in your in one of your books, you talked about how we don't want to just be, I hope I get this right. We don't want to just be firing lessons and strategies at students from a canon. Right. Um, and I noticed you, like, you're very careful with how you do that kind of work with your PLCs and, and your professional learning networks. Like you said earlier, you weren't the boss. You weren't the person firing out strategies. You were a member of the community. It seems like you're also saying part of the humility is whether it's writing workshop or making writing, using loose parts, fire starters, any of the strategies. It's not about firing strategies at students. It's about um, being with being present with students and learning about them, bringing some humility to that interaction so that they can start learning how to love writing. Right. In any of its uh, Really, it comes down of to the beginning of any learning experience needs to provoke divergent thinking first. And mm -hmm. we have to, we have to capture that thinking. So that's why, you know, when I share a lot of photos of things like index cards or sticky notes or a room full of students building with all sorts of different materials. That's because the prompt is really important. The questions are really important. Ask a lot of questions, offer a lot of different prompts that that writers can interpret in a lot of different ways and give them wide open opportunity to, to get a lot of different potential ideas and approaches mm -hmm. on the table. Notice what they're doing and help them start creating relationships between those ideas. So brainstorm 50 different potential story topics and then start to cluster and categorize them. 50 different ways that we might handle um, a particular form and start to to really notice relationships and the Venn diagram between certain elements. It's, it's really about divergent thinking, then noticing relationships between all of the stuff that's starting to surface and really paying attention to your gut. What of all of these possibilities and connections you're making, where do you really have strong feelings? You're excited, you're angry, you're sad, um, you are, wanting to make a claim about something or teach someone how to do something, pay attention to those strong feelings and what you know you're good at. That's what you should be writing. That's how you should be writing. Yeah. So if, if you're constantly writing stories at home, that's something you're really good at. How might you use story to make a claim about something that's going on in your community that isn't fair? Or if you're really good at using electronics and wiring something, how might you teach someone else how to do that? That's writing too. Um, mm -hmm. So let's dig into that because 
Jason Palmieri is uh, the co-director of the Ohio Writing Project, yeah. who is, you know, bringing this Hugely podcast to people. inspirational to all of us. <laughs> He's name-checked yes. in the book, um, yeah. in the newest book. And he would probably kill me if I didn't talk a lot about multimodal writing. <laughs> yeah. So he wouldn't kill me. He's like the nicest person ever. He obviously is because I'm constantly stalking him on social <laughs> media. And he also likes the stuff I share, which is incredibly humbling. And my face burns every time I see he liked something. I want to print it and hang it on my fridge. Anyway, he's, um, he's a magical yeah. person. Yes. So, I, so incredibly generous. Oh, Just yeah. produced this incredible open source text that I shared a while back with Sean yeah. Capula and Paul Hankins and some other people in, in the multimodal conversation but i'm late to that party for sure oh same but i wanted to talk about you have some really you break down multimodal writing in some ways that i haven't seen it happen and it makes it really uh concrete for teachers it also opens up lots of possibilities that i hadn't thought about before but i'm like when i read them i'm like oh i should have been thinking about this all along right um like the i the thing with transmedia storytelling, I was like, oh yeah, that's why kids love Pokemon so much is mm -hmm. it's cards, it's books, it's TV shows, it's movies. It's, it is the ultimate multimodal kind of work. Same with Minecraft. Right. I was kind of curious if you, if you, I want people to buy the book. That's why I'm not talking too much about all the individual strategies, like loose parts and fire stars. They should buy the book too. <laughs> but sweet. but yeah. um. But could you talk about how, like a good entry point for multimodal writing? Sure. Um, I will say this. I intentionally write my books in a way where I hope elementary and middle school and high school teachers can sort of grasp onto very tangible approaches and a language for this because we don't have it. And so I always worry because the world of multimodal composition is incredibly complex and sophisticated. It is gorgeous and richly textured. Um, and that's not necessarily how I communicate about it in the books that I write. And that's intentional. Um, the books that I write are all very different from one another to some degree, especially the inclusive writing environments book because I focused a lot on equity inside of that book but my other books really my purpose is I want someone to read it and be able to take what I'm doing and go into their classroom and immediately use it that that's really what I want those books to be and so for me when I think about entry points into multimodal writing I am always thinking about where are k-12 teachers in the United States coming from right now because that's typically my audience right they're coming from a pretty standardized world and that's the language that we've had we're going to teach narrative writing research and information writing argument or opinion writing right that's the frame that we have we also focus on structure a lot Oh, so a story is somebody wanted but so then everyone knows that frame if they are invested English language arts teachers. You know, an argument is a claim, evidence to support the claim, counterclaim, refutation. We have these structures. So if you can think about it that way, and that's where you come from, I want to make it easy for you to make mm -hmm. the leap into multimodal. Yeah. So I start with 
the structure. What is the form that the writer is going to create? Story. Okay, so you have a structure for that that you often play with. Somebody wanted, but so then. Or read a bunch of mentor texts or look at some examples of multimodal stories and tease out the conventions of that form. What's the structure? What are the rules that you want to play by? And then what I typically do is I have writers either we look at lots of examples of the thing they want to create, right? Oh, well, mm -hmm. I want to I create an animated short or I want to design a podcast, or I want to create um, an infographic. Look at some examples of that thing. Mm -hmm. What are the conventions? What are you noticing? And then let's do a mock-up of it, you know? So we'll storyboard, or we'll create a wireframe of what a, a website might look like, right? Um, let's create a mock-up, and then once you have the mock-up or the prototype starting to emerge, you can start to talk about very specific things inside of it that are design choices. Mm -hmm. What font do you want to use? What color should we be using? Let's talk about the spatial layout of this entire thing. How are we going to use music for effect? You can, I love with a storyboard, if they're going to create for instance, if they decide I'm going to, to write a narrative, but it is going to be an animated short, I'm going to try and use Canva and their video, you know, um, uh, app and, or tools inside of it to create it. Let's plan it with a storyboard and we can go panel by panel and figure out what music you're going to drop into each, you know, background or what ambient noise are you going to use. Um, I, I think that the planning tools, if they're really dynamic, can absolutely bridge us from this place where we used to be as English language arts teachers, where we gave them the graphic organizer. Mm -hmm. Okay, but go from graphic organizer to like prototype or a mock-up or, you know, a storyboard. It does the same thing. It's about the structure mm -hmm. of the thing and how you're hanging it together. And it makes it more visible and tangible and workable where then we can say, what music are we dropping in panel by panel? What colors are we going to use? And if we can start to isolate and really commit to learning more about design elements, it just makes it much more, I think, coherent to mm -hmm. try and teach in this way. Because the first time that that multimodal composition was coming into my writing workshops in my classroom too, um, it was because students were bringing it there unexpectedly. I did not want to stop them because it mm -hmm. was engaging them. But mm -hmm. if you had asked me, how are you going to begin to teach this with intention? Mm -hmm. I did not know how that was going to look. And it's been having to work with teachers and lots of other systems and, and communities where they want a tangible approach and we're figuring it out together that I'm realizing I have to be willing to bridge what teachers used to do in writers workshop to what teachers could be doing with mm -hmm. multi to serve multimodal composers. Yeah. And I think we can take some of the stuff we've always known how to use like a graphic design, like a graphic organizer, how does that become a real design tool mm -hmm. in the real world? And it really is about, for me, the form and the structure, the conventions of the form, and then planning it and making very intentional design choices, maybe mm -hmm. one little step at a time, having yes. a language for that. And correct me if I'm speaking out of line, but one thing 
you can also think about if you're just getting into multimodal work, when you're looking at mentor text, sometimes if, especially if students are new to the work, it may not be about what kind of music you're dropping in. Like I teach third and fourth graders right. and we, we've been doing some podcasting projects recently. Right. It's not for this, these kids, they're so young. It's their first and right now it's their third time. But when it was their first time doing podcasts, it wasn't about putting bumper music in all the right spots and the perfect kind. Oh. It was about playing with music. Right. And one, one student had like a minute and a half long musical intro. <laughs> and it was kind of brutal to listen, but she was playing with it. And then on the second podcast, um, or if we would have had time to revise that one, but in this case, on our second podcast, she learned from how long that intro was when we listened to it as a class and she saw how people were reacting about 45 seconds in. Her next intro was only, 20, was only yeah. 24 seconds. You talk a lot about the power of audience and that's one of the, that's an example of how you can start just with the basic thing that you see in a mentor text, the most basic version. But if you keep doing multimodal work, you can do iterations where students can yes. revise and you or keep testing it, improve upon. Yeah. yeah. And what I love, and it's just been such a, it's been an incredible realization probably over the last five years or so. If I know what my standard is as an English language arts teacher, students are going to create a narrative. That's what I got in my head. That's what I know I want them to get good at are the learning targets that live inside of that standard. They'll create a character. They'll have a sequence of events. Maybe there'll be a conflict. They'll play with some dialogue. There will be a satisfying conclusion, right? That answers mm -hmm. readers' questions. All the other stuff around multimodality, they can actually take some big risks and make some big mistakes because I'm not evaluating that. Yeah, I'm not really looking for that. I need to know, did you tell a coherent story? Did you meet these English language art specific um, learning targets and standards? Right. So that means if you want to try and play with making, you know, uh, an, um, uh, an animated short or a stop motion video, mm -hmm. or you want to tell your story on a podcast, I'm still assessing, did I hear you develop a character? Is there a coherent sequence of events? Did you mess around with setting and descriptive? Like I'm still assessing for the English language arts standards, which means I don't have to, I do not have to evaluate or bring judgment to mm -hmm. their design work. And the design work can be something that they are willing to keep playing with and testing. In my mm -hmm. new book, I talk about using, because we started this in my writing studio a couple of years ago, the, the spark tank. Um, approach tank. yeah so it's sort of like shark tank where they bring a prototype of a multimodal composition to the room mm -hmm. but um it's it's not judgmental or competitive they mm -hmm. test something just like what you were describing with your student where she shared mm -hmm. her podcast and the intention is i have this really cool idea i'm just fiddling around with it i want to know if you would invest in it right like what makes this good? How can I make it better? And everyone in the room is giving really good feedback. Um, that's framed as warm and cool, not compliments or criticism. It's not mm -hmm. an evaluative thing, but then mm -hmm. they can go back and keep tinkering with it. They also don't have to have a perfect product at the end of the unit, right? Mm -hmm. So my students might use a storyboard to frame out how they're going to create their animated short, which is a narrative. They're using maybe a lot of print in that storyboard and I'm assessing it bit by bit. The writing is happening with written words and I'm assessing that. But if they don't 
produce a perfectly polished animated short by the end of the first quarter that's okay and they can keep messing with it maybe during a genius hour or mm -hmm. the, the frame that i'm using in schools that i design these curriculum with right now is they're maybe going through three different multimodal project cycles in a year mm -hmm. so maybe first quarter second quarter third quarter we're doing narrative we're doing the research and information writing we're doing argument writing it's all aligned still to the new york state standards or whatever standards we're working with out of state um, and students are absolutely producing those pieces inside of a writing workshop and they're writing their written words are being assessed mm -hmm. um, and we are reporting on those findings on report cards into parents but they may not have a perfectly polished podcast at the end of the first quarter. Second quarter, they may have an imperfectly mocked up infographic. Third quarter, they might have the beginnings of an animated short. Fourth quarter, maybe I'm going to let you pick one of those and you're absolutely going to spend the fourth quarter learning how to make it your very best work and we're going to publish it. That's kind of where we are. And But there's a million different ways to hang um, a learning experience together over the course of a year. But for me, the big issues were always, we don't have a language for multimodal composition. We have this framework in place that doesn't make room for multimodal composition. It's all written words, in these instructional and curriculum frameworks. Um, and what if we don't have the resources? And what if we don't have the time? How are we handling all of that? So my new books, the two that are coming out this year, they really provide answers there. Not the answer, sure. but like, this is what I'm learning so far, right? Like yeah. every other book that I've written where this is not how I'm telling you you should do it. It's how I'm trying it right now personally. And if it helps you, go mess with it and tell me how you made it better. That's kind of that's exciting. Where I come from. That's exciting. So I went way over time with you, but let's let's bring it home with one more question. You because sure. you already started to kind you already started to answer this one earlier. How would you say that writing and making things influences the way you work with students and teach writing and making things? So in a couple of different ways, I find that there are ways to make the process of writing more multimodal. And this enables writers of all ages and all experience levels to rapidly hang a composition together using something like loose parts. I can have writers, business people will use loose parts to prototype a story that they're hanging together about their company. And they can do that in 20 minutes. If I ask them to outline that, it would take them three days to get mm -hmm. that done. But we can get with loose parts and even with multimodal expression um, of all kinds, we can get a working draft on the table very fast. And typically it's reflective of and representative of our most complex ideas where mm -hmm. I will often see people lower the complexity of the idea uh -huh. If I if I put a pen or a keyboard in front of them because they're not quite mm -hmm. sure how to use written words to express it. So they'll, they'll choose something simpler and less gorgeous as a result. Mm -hmm. So making the process of writing more multimodal usually protects complexity and it helps us rapidly prototype something and fail fast and make it better. 
and that protects our stamina for the work as well. It also invites a much more, I think, collaborative process. We can also, as English language arts teachers and as writers in every capacity, I saw this play out time and again during the pandemic, you know, a lot of the students that I had as a very young teacher, they're in their 30s and in in 40s now because they're close to my age. When I when I started teaching, I was teaching seniors um, in high school. I was 21, so they're not that much younger than I am. Um, and many of them are the students that I taught way back when, when I believed that they were gifted because they could pound out a five paragraph essay perfectly. Yeah or they could hang together a research paper or they were publishing novels when they were in high school, right? Well, those are gifted writers. I don't have to use the loose part stuff with them. And I even write about this in a way that I disagree with now in make writing. And make writing, I say, oh, making is an invitation. It's never a mandate. I totally disagree with that now. I really believe that multimodal expression needs to be a significant part of what we are doing every day in writer's workshop. The process can be multimodal, but what I also know is this. If you as a gifted writer in any domain are not able to translate that into a multimodal composition, you are going to be less influential. So there were lots of my former students during the pandemic who needed to pivot out of a job that was really dissatisfying or even abusive. They needed to get out of a professional situation that was really toxic. And they had all these grand plans and master schemes that they wanted to go do something else. Every single time that they were unable to move, it was because they didn't know how to create a multimodal something out of something they created with print. They didn't have a digital footprint. They were not translating the stuff that they were putting in a book into an Instagram post or a TikTok video or a blog post or a podcast. So nobody was paying attention to what they were doing. Um, and because they didn't have that sort of multimodal digital footprint, they were losing opportunities that they would have had otherwise. And so we're kidding ourselves as English teachers if we think that multimodality is the icing on some cake or that it, it is, you know, peripheral to what we are supposed to be doing in English language arts. No, we are actually compromising their ability to be powerful writers out in the real world if we're not explicitly supporting that work in our classrooms. And it is tricky. It is hard. It's daunting. Um, but it's also really exciting. And I think if we can, if we can decenter ourselves and follow them a bit, we're going to learn what we need to learn. Angela was such an awesome person to talk to, and I've followed her work for quite some time. If you want to follow her work, be sure to check out the show notes of this episode, where I've included a few different links to her work um, and also to her social media. You know what else you can find in the show notes? Ways that you can become more involved with the Ohio Writing Project, and probably one of the best ways is to sign up for one of the summer credit workshops with OWP or for the master's degree through Miami University that you can get. Um, you know, this summer is the 43rd annual workshop on the teaching of writing. It starts on June 13th, and they're on campus, and there are hybrid options. We also are offering a course this summer about Indigenous voices, past and present. That one is going to be in person. Um, there's an assessment and feedback for teaching and learning and this is a hybrid designed class. In this class, I've taken it in the past, and it 
it's not just about making tests. It's about really doing meaningful assessment that helps our teaching and helps our students to grow. And then there's a class called Inside the Essay, Rethinking Essay Writing. It's a hybrid class. They're designing writing a literacy toolbox class for the elementary classroom. And there is a class called Food Writing, Genre Study. It's a hybrid class. But wait, there's more. There's a class for supporting and enriching literacy and ELL students. There's so much. Check out the link in the show notes. And thank you so much for tuning in to Write Answers. Thank you.